My name is Sam, and I have the uh, privilege of screaming at you, preaching you, to you for uh, a little bit. Oh, well, there we go. I meant my name is Sam. All right. I'm going to pray. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians, and we're going to get right into it. Uh, if you don't know what 1 Corinthians is, it's Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, first four books of the New Testament, Acts, which is the uh, first four, basically the story of life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The book of Acts is the story of the church after that, the continuing work of Jesus through the church. And then the book of Romans is a nice book of theology, and then 1 Corinthians is next. So I'm going to pray. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians 1, 18 and following, and so let me just uh, pray that God moves me out of the way and says what He wants to say. Father God, we bow before You, before Your throne. You are holy and You are our Father. So we are slow to speak before You, but we know that when we do speak, You listen, and we do put requests upon Your altar. You answer them, and Your answers are always good. This morning, Father, I pray that You will move me out of the way, that the Spirit will speak the words that He needs to speak, whether they are words of comfort or conviction. Father, lift the veils over the hearts of those who are here that they might receive your words, that we might see, Father, the foolishness of the gospel, at least the foolishness that it is in the eyes of the world. But we, Father, to us who believe, it is the power of God. And so I pray that it will be the center of our lives, the foundation of our lives. Speak to us this morning. Let us not be allured by the lies promises of sin and the wisdom of the world, which is not wisdom at all. It's in the name of Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. All right, right to it, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18, and I'm going to read, uh, we'll go through the rest of the chapter, but I'm going to break it into two separate chunks uh, so that we can deal with it uh, in kind of two, two ways. So, verse 18 says this, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So, 1 Corinthians, we're studying a letter to, uh, I should say, from the Apostle Paul who wrote 13 of uh, the books in the New Testament. He was a Christian murderer turned Christian martyr, and he's writing to a young, uh, growing church at the center of the Roman Empire in what is a booming city called Corinth. And the church in Corinth is uh, fairly young, it's probably five, six years old. And it is uh, hopping and, and spiritual and passion, all these things. Uh, but instead of wisely taking all that they are and going into uh, the culture, 
as the family of God, as light, if you will, in the darkness, what's happened is that they are foolishly bringing the culture into the church family. And it's starting to change them. Not for good. It is changing them specifically in how they view their relationship with God, how they view their relationship and how they, like themselves, their own identity, and how they view and interact with one another. And so they're pouring in this wisdom, or maybe chasing it, if you will, and they're becoming like the culture that they're supposed to be changing. And so, much like the Rome, and Rome is the city that they are, or the empire they're part of, and Corinth is a Roman city, so much like the Romans around them who are fighting for power and fighting for prosperity and fighting for domination in the world, in the church you have a bunch of self-absorbed Christians who are beginning to fight and compete with one another for domination in the church. Now, as Paul said last week, the church is just divided. And it's not just divided in half, it's divided in all kinds of pieces. And they're in the middle of a good old-fashioned, my pastor is better than your pastor, battle royal. And they are talking about Apollos and Paul and, and Peter and Jesus and all these different people making teams. And instead of finding their identity and their acceptance and their joy and their value in Jesus Christ, they're fighting over establishing their identity in the approval of men. So Paul's pretty disgusted. And even though there's a teen Paul, which maybe he should be excited about, he condemns all of their boasting. And it's not that he really cares what they think about him. What he really wants is for them not to think about him at all. He wants to turn their eyes away from him as the guy who preached to them, the guy that planted the church, the guy that baptized. Don't talk about me. If you're talking about me more than you're talking about Jesus, there's a problem, as there is with any church, where they talk about the pastor or the preacher or whatever leader more than they talk about Jesus. So Paul makes the point, look, I was not sent to build a following for myself, not sent to build Apostle Paul ministries.com. I was sent for one mission, to preach the news of Jesus and to make followers of Him. That's it. And he does it with a message. The Gospel means good news. It is news. And the Gospel, it's important to understand, it's a received message. Right? It's not something Paul contrived or, or made up. He's not commanded by Jesus to be creative with it, to kind of be clever and crafty so that people will listen to him. He is not commanded to go preach with eloquence so that he will be admired. He is not supposed to be clever so that he can be entertaining. He's not even supposed to be sensitive so he will be accepted. Evidenced by the fact that he's beaten out of just about every place he tries to preach. He was to be direct and blunt, and accurate. And he was, for all intents and purposes, as every Christian is, a glorified mailman. He was to repeat the words that he had been told and wipe his hands of them. Changing hearts were not in his job description. 
or his power. So it was a very important message, but it was a received message. It was also a simple message. In other words, the gospel is not difficult to understand. And the most um, discouraging thing I, thing I think I've learned as a pastor is that not many people know the gospel. You might think you know the gospel. And so I say, hey, what's the gospel? Jesus died for my sins. You sound like a fantastic, good Mormon. Okay? Even the Muslim might say that. Did you know that? Can you say the gospel in 60 seconds or less? Can you tell the story of God in, in a short amount of time? Because it's a very simple message. And if you can't, there's a problem. See, the gospel simply says that it begins with the fact that all men are depraved. All men are sinful. All men are in rebellion against a good God. And their sin makes all men guilty before a holy God and sentenced to die before a just God. But that same God is, guess what? Merciful, and gracious, and forgiving. And so in love, God chose to save men to display His greatness ultimately, and to be with, crazily, the ones who had rejected Him. And so how did He do that? He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to die the death that we deserve for our sins, and they raised Him from the dead as proof of His victory and power over sin, Satan, and death, all the enemies that we have. And our King, Jesus, is going to return again to gather His family and judge the world. Simple message. That's the message of the Gospel. But more than anything, it's a received message. You make it up. It's a simple message. More than anything, it's a very foolish message. By foolish, I mean the world looks at it and says, that's madness. And know this, that more people will disbelieve than believe. Never forget that. More people will disbelieve than believe the gospel. And even in Jesus' time, his leaders, his pastors, even his own family and friends thought that he was at best a tragic, humble servant, or at worst, a demon-possessed nut job. Those were all the people around him. And so, in the eyes of Rome, right? Powerful Rome, dominating Rome, right? Maximus, gladiator, right? Think about this. The story of a leader putting down a rebellion by dying for the enemy doesn't sit too well with Rome. They have a different method of dealing with rebellions. So the story is foolish. It's countercultural. It's not what you would ever expect to see in the world, and it's also counterintuitive. It's not what we like in our own hearts. That's why Paul says the word of the cross, right? The crucifixion is foolishness to an unbelieving Roman world. And as I said, Corinth is a Roman city. And I think it's interesting that he doesn't say the word of the resurrection or the word of the tomb. Because without doubt, the resurrection is essential 
to the gospel. Paul says that, and he says it later in Corinthians, we don't have the resurrection, man, we are a people to be pitied. So the resurrection is key, but the glorious resurrection, which powerfully, more than anything, proclaims victory over enemies like sin, and victory over Satan, and victory over death, is not a part of the story that generates the most mockery of the culture or embarrassment in the church. It's the crucifixion. See, out of all the ways to die at this time, death by crucifixion is quite possibly the worst. And by worst, I don't necessarily mean that it was just physically brutal. It was. It was horrible. Romans had become experts in killing people. It perfected it. But crucifixion was also just socially disgusting. See, crucifixion was a a special kind of reserved form of execution that was for convicted slaves or, or convicted terrorists or just the slimiest of slime. It was reserved for them. It would never be imposed upon the respectable criminals, right? There's even a pecking order in in crime in Rome. The respectable criminals were exiled or beheaded or thrown in the arena, not crucifixion. So in a society of winners, Jesus was the ultimate loser in every measurable way according to the world. So whether you were a Jew or a Gentile, a Roman or a Greek, most of the world was and is unimpressed with a Middle Eastern Jew who was a carpenter from a dump called Nazareth. And measured by the world's standards of success, it's pretty unconvincing and silly to think that this guy hanging on a Roman cross is God in the human flesh, Lord of all, coming to judge the world. I mean, who is going to ever follow a man who is rejected by those that he supposedly came to save, abandoned by his own disciples, executed by the government, and then unable to save himself? Foolish. In the eyes of culture, the crucifixion of Jesus was the very definition of failure. And so it's a foolish message. The word of the cross, the crucifixion, is foolishness. And so, being allured by the world, spending a lot of time in the world, listening to the world that says this is the path to glory, the Corinthians are starting to uh, get off-center. They are no longer centered on the cross of Jesus. The cross does not define who they are or how they interact. It's not as if, I don't think yet, the Corinthians have completely rejected Christ as much as they're just trying to move beyond the cross into maybe more spiritual things. Or at least things a little less foolish or maybe wise in the eyes of the world. They want to be like the world. Similar to maybe how Israel wanted to have a king like everybody else. And Paul basically said, this is, this is the most foolish thing you could be doing. See, Paul, maybe, he's a Roman. And though he, as a Roman, should be embarrassed by the cross, he's not at all. In fact, he 
He doesn't try to hide what is offensive in the story and kind of like, well, yeah, he was crucified. But he rose from the dead, right? He doesn't do that. In fact, he says the crucifixion, the cross, is, is at the center of his preaching. That's what he wants to know among them and nothing else. He says the cross is the wisdom and the power of God. It might be foolish to you, battalions, armies, strength, domination. That's not what Paul means by power. By power, what Paul is talking about, it's that one thing, that one thing that can effectively save. That one thing that can defeat evil. That one thing that can transform life. It's the one thing that is a power, like we're always looking for something to fix it. Something to to get us out of that situation we're in, that hell we find ourselves in, or that hell we want to avoid. What has the power to do that? Because we're constantly looking for something. To fix that relationship. To fix my sense of failure. Paul says it's the cross. And he doesn't try to convince people that the cross is logical, or that it's inoffensive. He simply Proclaim the news. Said the message. And he trusted more in the power of the cross to convince more than in his ability to persuade someone. But that's not where the culture found power. See, the world offers its own alternative set of values, its own definition of wisdom, its own formula for success. And by world... I mean that which is in rebellion against God. Because culture isn't evil. But there is a world out there the Bible constantly talks about is that which is in rebellion against God. So while the cross offers values like weakness and sacrifice and humility as the source of power, what does the world say? It comes from strength. It comes from wealth. It comes from fame. Popularity. See, the world tells us that salvation, right? Contentment. Everyone's on a search for contentment. They think they can find it in different places. Freedom. Especially from that personal hell that you've created. What's my personal hell? That thing, that environment that I either want to avoid. Poverty or being alone, whatever it is. True salvation and freedom from that comes, the world says, from winning. And the cross says, from losing. The world says taking, not giving. The world says achieving, not surrendering. And the current status of the Corinthian church that we see and will continue to see is evidence of what happens when you stop preaching the gospel and stop preaching the cross to yourself, in your marriage, in your family, or in your church. You might talk a lot about Jesus, but you perhaps have forgotten the cross. And you're thinking that you're going to find power when you begin to adopt the ways of the world and the wisdom of the world and you bring it to your family. And you will find power in some sense, but it won't be the power to fix or restore what you think you've lost. You'll have a power to destroy. Here's what it will destroy. When you abandon the cross of Jesus Christ, when that is no longer centered to your life, when that's no longer the thing that defines you as a person, it will destroy your relationship with God your relationship with yourself, and your relationship with others. Let me prove it to you. See, when you 
adopt the wisdom of the world. It will destroy your relationship with God because you've got to remember, most people believe in God. Most people believe in heaven. I think the last statistic was 75 to 80% people believe there's heaven, and they all believe they're going there. And the reason why they believe they're going there is because they believe that their relationship with God is dependent upon their work, and they view themselves pretty good. Put me on the scales. I got a little more good than I have bad. Because when you abandon the cross and you continue in your relationship with God, it becomes basically dependent upon yourself of behaving just the right way or obeying just the right rules or following just the right traditions. That's a hard place to be. I'm always wondering, like, did you make it? Do you know that every other religion other than Christianity is a works-based system? Whatever end goal it is, heaven, free from desire, it's all based off of what you're going to be able to do. Very different than Christianity. The wisdom of the world, Paul says, cannot lead men to know God because it always leads to self. It always leads to self-righteousness and always away from the cross. But the wisdom of the world, as you begin to believe that and believe your relationship with God that way, it actually begins to destroy your whole view of yourself and your relationship with yourself, if you can have that, because your acceptance and your identity becomes rooted in your work so much You cannot help but swing between two extremes, pride or despair. You either have really good days or really bad days, based on how well you behaved, based on how much success you've had, compared to others, usually. Man, I've had good thoughts today. I, I helped that old lady across the street today. I gave that bum five bucks today. That was a pretty good day. And the next day, you're a real jerk. And you're crying in the fetal position because you feel so worthless. Your value system and your value as a person becomes dependent upon what you know, what you do, and what you accomplish. And some people take their job, for example. I'm always amazed you go to reunions and things like that, or like my class reunion. First question people always ask, what do you do for a living? Why? Because it's a huge part of identity. I am what I do. And when what you do gets taken away, suddenly you're despairing because that was your value. Or when someone else does what you do better. You can't help but go between pride and despair. All based really on the approval of men because you want to look better than or not worse than. Without the cross, you get to this place because you're so rude in the approval end where you're never really sure if you made it in, quote, dad's eyes, right? Dad can be dad and dad can be anybody. I just, I want to know that I'm successful. I want to know that I've done it. I always feel like I'm a little behind, like someone else has done it better than me. And so your value is just like so fragile. Your identity is going back and forth to something new every day. So it destroys your relationship with God, destroys your relationship with yourself because you're looking at the world going, what is success? Okay, I'm going to pursue that. Well, I suck at that, so I must suck. I'm going to do this. And then it destroys your relationship with other people. What do you see in Corinth? Well, they abandon the cross and they do that by making much of themselves. The church is full of pride. Like, well, I follow Paul. I follow Peter. Basically, I know more than you. I know more than you. I'm better than you. 
And when you end up making much of yourself, you start making less of other people. And apart from Christ, what happens is everyone else becomes the comparison or the measure of whether you are good or bad. And you try to really keep most people down and you end up judging them and competing with them. You base your own value on what you do and what you accomplish and you begin to base others' value on that same thing. Are you like me or are you not like me? Are you successful in the world or not? Are you ugly or are you good-looking? Educated, uneducated? Friendly, unfriendly? What job do you do? What don't you do? Do you homeschool or do you go to public school? Do you wear these clothes or not wear them? I mean, it's endless. And that's how you evaluate everyone. You start feeling, well, I'm glad I'm not as screwed up as you are. Or, wow, that person's amazing. I wish I was like them. I'm sure no one's ever experienced that. But that's what happens when you begin to adopt the wisdom of the world and your identity is rooted in yourself, everyone else becomes competition. No longer are people family members. They're people valued for how much, again, they're like you or not like you, successful or unsuccessful. And we're not fellow sinners. Everyone's projects that are more broken or less than others. Changes your relationship with people. And because you haven't experienced the grace and the forgiveness of the cross, you don't center yourself, you don't show grace and forgiveness to anybody. And you view them as sick and you better stay away from me because I'm clean. Make sure you walk through here yelling, unclean, unclean, because I don't want to catch the sin disease that you've got. Changes your relationship with people. It's dangerous to abandon the cross and to allow the wisdom of the world to govern your life. If you're a Christian... If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, the cross, the, the crucifixion is central to our faith. It is the very wisdom and power of God because we know where it's taken us from. And we know what we actually are. See, the Corinthians have forgotten that the cross wasn't just like the entry path into life. It's supposed to be the way that we walk through life. Saving men through the cross In doing that, God makes a mockery of all men's efforts to save themselves. I mean, it's it's no mistake that God did this during Rome. You ever wonder that? Like, why did he do it in the 20th century? Like, Rome, like, we still look back at Rome as like the peak of, like, human civilization. Like, whoa, it was amazing. And the crucifixion is like the peak of their ability to kill people. So what does he do? He takes what is a symbol of Roman power, of Roman rule, a Roman terror, and he makes it into a symbol of his rule and love. Amazing. And the word of the cross turns everything upside down. The entire value system that we so wisely adopt as a, as a world, ridiculous. He shows us how foolish we were. I like um, singer-songwriter, you may have never heard of him, he's a, a Christian songwriter named Michael Card. And... Um, I can only remember one song of his, and I remembered as I was writing the sermon. It's called God's Own Fool, and here's a line from it, a couple. He says, we in our foolishness thought we were wise. He played the fool, and he opened our eyes. And we in our weakness believed we were strong, and he became helpless to show we were wrong. And so we follow God's own fool. See, the cross is... The foolish, total reversal of the weak and strong. 
Christ wins our salvation through losing. He achieves power through weakness and service. He comes to wealth by giving everything away. And those who, think about this, those who receive His salvation, those who believe are not the strong and accomplished, but those who admit they are weak and lost. Not a real common thing in our culture. No one wants to admit they're weak or lost. Oh, I don't know how to save myself. I just got to work harder. And as evidence of this fact, Paul reminds the Corinthians of, let's just remember where you guys came from. Here's what he writes in the second part of verse 26 to the end of the chapter. He says, let's just remember who you guys were. He says, for consider your calling, right? By calling, what is it? I always like to remember Mark chapter 1, Jesus walking on the beach, Peter's out fishing, he says, follow me. That's it. Not follow me, we're going to do awesome things. Not follow me, I'm going to die in three years. Not follow me, everything's going to be wonderful. Just follow me. Peter's like, okay. And just follows him. This is what, that's, that's salvation. You're going one way, Jesus says, all right, let's go. And there's a turn. So there's a huge turn. He says, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. He's speaking about them. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world. Even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Why is he writing to Corinth? Because they're so full of themselves. You'll see throughout the book of Corinthians, it talks about knowledge, and how knowledge puffs up, because they don't talk, talk about, well, I know this, and I know this, and this is the way. They're boasting in themselves. And he basically says, don't forget where you came from, man. You guys tried it in the world's way, and let's be honest, you guys really failed royally following the wisdom of the world. Like in the eyes of the world, you were total losers. You were weak and you were despised, and Christ chose you. And in Christ, you became saints. In Christ, he said in the very beginning of the chapter, you became set apart for God. He made you into what you are. And so, that feels good to be told you're a saint. That be, feels good to be told you're set apart for God. Well, what happens is suddenly they start losing their, yeah, that's right. I am special. I am this. And then they begin to adopt things of the world to continue to perpetuate that rather than finding rest and contentment in what God said they already are. Because they don't, recognize, and maybe none of us recognize, that this isn't the prosperity gospel, right? What I mean by that, God doesn't come and say, I'm going to save you and then make you fruitful and rich and powerful as proof. God didn't save the weak and the despised in order to make them strong and powerful in the world. He saves the weak and the low and the despised in order to reveal His wisdom and power to the world. Prosperity gospel is just a bunch of junk. 
And here's the other scary thing. The thing we don't think about. When you consider the wisdom of God, it's what? Foolish in the eyes of the world. Looks not so. The way God does things. Using the weak to defeat the strong. Come on. Giving everything away rather than taking and achieving and saving and retiring. Right? That's just silly. Here's what he says. In Ephesians chapter 3, he says that this foolishness, which is actually God's wisdom, is supposed to be evidenced through the church. The church was birthed to display this. Here's what it says. Consider the idea of foolishness. Ephesians 3 says, To me, Paul writing, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace is given. To preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known. Right? So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known. Okay, hold on to your hats. Ready? I know, I can tell you're excited. Tell your face you are. Ready? That means that if the church, according to God's Word, is manifesting the wisdom of God, the wisdom of God, right? His wisdom, the world thinks it's foolishness. Then when the church, us, the gathering of the disciples, when it is contrasted against the world, we are going to look pretty foolish. We are going to live differently. Not we're going to have to try and live differently. When you center your life on the cross, you're going to live differently. You're going to sacrifice and serve differently, love differently. Why would you forgive that person? Why would you spend your money on that? Why would you go down to Honduras? Why would you care about the homeless? Of course, no one's going to really say that out loud will look foolish in the eyes of the world. Wealth doesn't come by giving. Power doesn't come by serving. And I think that if we don't look foolish, we should be concerned. Because perhaps if we don't look foolish, we've stopped believing, preaching, or living a life centered on the cross. Because that's what the cross produces. We don't have to try and be foolish I'm sure you, I know I do a fine job of looking like a fool. But in terms of God's foolishness, it's what happens when you send your life on the cross. And when you don't, like Corinth here, when you abandon the cross, you become divided, as we've seen. You become immoral, as you see. And you become prideful. That sounds just like the world. Exactly like the world. Life centered on the cross displays what is our true citizenship. That it's, we are ambassadors in a foreign land. We are missionaries, if you will. And we are to live, while we're here, an alternative kingdom lifestyle, which maintains this total reversal of values, where power and recognition and status and wealth are totally different in our eyes. See, by the word of the cross... Through the word of the cross, we stop believing that power to change or power 
to save or power to fix or power to succeed or whatever it is you need or looking to other things for power, we find out and realize that it doesn't come through anything but grace. And so you stop seeking salvation in the things of the world. And that's what people do. Sometimes it's a person. Sometimes it's a job. Sometimes it's money or a certain level of achievement. Sometimes it's substances. And what you're really looking for is that thing to save you. And you're really worshiping that thing. How do I know? Because you're trying to find your hope in it. Your joy comes from it. Or if you don't have it, you're not joyful or life is hopeless. But when you center on the cross, when you find your hope and your joy and your meaning and your value in the cross, where our Savior died, it restores all your relationships that were broken. It restores your relationship with God. It restores your relationship with yourself and with others. And with God, what happens, it's completely transformed because what you find out, the news of the cross, the gospel, is that salvation is something to be received, not achieved. It's something to be received as a gift, not achieved. The word of the cross says there's absolutely nothing you can do. You can do nothing to fix your relationship with God. Jesus is the only one that can do it for you. The gospel doesn't work like anything else in the world that's very much focused on achievement. Now, mind you, there is work involved. It's painful work, horrible work, sacrificial work. It's just not your work. It's Christ's. And you benefit from it through faith. My relationship with God then moves away from this impersonal, he's my boss and I'm an employee and I better do enough in order to make sure I don't tick him off or that I get my raise or that I get into like, you know, the big place. It totally changes. It's no longer fear-based. And instead, it becomes a father-child relationship that is love-based. And you have a desire to delight in your Lord. Changes your relationship with God. It also restores your relationship with yourself because once you realize that it's God who's doing it all, it's Jesus who has done the work for you, You change your whole view of yourself and your identity is totally secure. Before, right, you went between extremes of pride and despair based on how good your and bad your days were or how you compared with others. But now my value comes from my identity in Christ. My identity in Christ sets the foundation at all. So if, I, if I'm a plumber and suddenly that's knocked off, my foundation in Christ doesn't change. If I'm a husband or, or a mom or whatever and perish the thought, I lose my family, I lose my spouse, my foundation in Christ doesn't change. My identity is secure. That's where it comes from. It's not based off of what the world says is successful, what the world says will bring me joy, what the world says is the source of hope. It's based on Christ. So I no longer need to adopt the wisdom of the world or pursue those things that the world says is successful. It frees me from bondage to the power of material things and the worldly status. I no longer have to prove myself worthy. That's what a lot of us do, especially guys. They try to prove that I'm worth it. I'm valuable by doing 
a ton of different things. There's nothing wrong with doing those things until they become the source of your identity. So I can stop now playing the uh, compare game with others or basing my value on something other than Jesus because in Christ I stand forever joyful, loved, accepted, and approved even if I do nothing. And lastly, it restores my relationship with others, which I think is beautiful. And this is exactly what the Church of Corinth needs. See, people stop being competition. And people stop being threats because you're no longer judging yourself based off what they are. You don't judge them. You become part of a family of brothers and sisters, a group of people who love Jesus, gospel workers, fellow sinners who are just as broken as you are. People are no longer competition, and you don't judge them based on the value that the world might. And what happens is when you come face to face with a cross, you see how horrible your sins are. Well, how horrible are they? They are so horrible, it took the Son of God dying on the cross to fix them. That's pretty bad. Yeah, that's about as bad a sacrifice as you can get. The greatest level of sacrifice. God himself came down and shed his blood for you. That's how bad your sin... I didn't think it was that bad. It's that bad. And when you know it's that bad, you can't help but look at others with grace. You can't help but see them through the eyes of Jesus. Because you know the depth of your own sin and you also know the depth of love because God did send his son to die and fix it. And so what happens is that foolish grace that you begin to believe, here's what it does to you. It compels you to love and to sacrifice for all those people that you once considered dirty, unworthy, unsuccessful, unlovable, broken, irritating, even some that you once called enemies. That's the kind of love it produces in you. The cross has power, and I've seen it and I've lived it, and I pray that you will as well. To conclude, I think the brutality of the cross, especially in our culture today, the offensiveness of that, of uh, the violence of it, with the level of exposure we have to violence today, I don't really think that's actually that offensive anymore to us. We've been desensitized to that level of horror, sadly. But I tell you what, the word of the cross is still just as offensive as ever. Especially to a culture that is very self-centered and very ambition-driven. See, the entire goal of God choosing, right? God choosing, God making, God initiating, God doing everything, is it shows or prevents, I should say, all human boasting. What are you going to boast about? Paul will later say, what do you have that you didn't receive? Our culture, let's be honest, is enamored with itself. And I don't say that like, yeah, that culture out there. Us! And if church isn't careful, we'll follow the way of the world and begin to believe this, that you've actually done something that you deserve to be saved for. You actually start to believe that, you know what, I'm pretty righteous. I've done some good things. I kind of feel like you owe me, God. That's the way of the world. 
It is foolishness to boast in our obedience, in our work, in any of our accomplishments. God is not impressed. And sadly, men too are easily impressed by that, but shouldn't be. Knowing God means preaching the cross. That's where it starts. And when you center your life on the cross, you cannot help but boast in everything that is God and in nothing that is you. We boast of all that Jesus had done in the cross because at the very end it says, that is what makes us wise before God. The cross is what makes us right before God. The cross is what changes us. The cross is what frees us from sin. The cross is the solution to fix all those problems that you have. It does not reside, that is, the solution to the problem in you. So we boast in Jesus and our need of Him when we fall short. We praise His name when we fall short. Praise God, it's not dependent upon me. Boast in Jesus. And then, we boast in Jesus, guess what? When we feel like we don't fall short. When we succeed. You boast in Jesus, because that's Jesus coming through you. And we boast about Jesus' love when we feel unloved. And we boast about Jesus' sacrifice. And we boast in Jesus' forgiveness when we screw up or what others do. And we boast in His grace. And we even boast in what Jesus is doing in people who are not us. That's hard for me. Other Christians, other pastors, even unbelievers that Jesus is, through His grace, still doing good things through. We boast in Him and not in that person. We boast even what Jesus does through our sufferings because the cross proves He actually does things through that. Most glorious things. And we boast in the fact that Jesus is coming again and we boast, this is hard, we boast in the fact that we have the privilege to be fools until He does. We boast about what makes us weak. We boast about where we fall short. We boast about our insufficiencies because, quite frankly, that just makes much of Jesus. And that's the whole point. So I pray as you come forward today, if you're a believer in Christ, you have confessed to believing a very foolish thing in the eyes of the world. And know that there are fewer people in the world that do. But as you come forward, recognize very much what you're declaring. Your own brokenness. Don't make a mockery of the cross. Don't come to the table thinking, well, I'm glad Jesus died for me, but I'm pretty darn good. You come to the table and recognize your own brokenness, your own need for forgiveness, your own grace. And then when you leave that table, let your centering or your life center on the cross actually impact the way you look and view and treat others. Because that's where we'll truly see your foolishness, if you will. Let's pray.